All right, I've got a great show. I've got two guests today. They are both victims of sexual assault when they were younger. Sarah Snyder escaped a cult, and she talks about how she did that and how she's overcoming everything that she endured in the first 18 years of her life in that cult. And then joining us halfway through is Don Taylor. Don is a trauma specialist, and she is just awesome. You can find her at thetaylorway.ca or at seenheardhealed.com. She's an author, she's written a book, and she is now helping others get past their trauma, and she helped Sarah. And very interesting conversation I had with them, and very moving. They're very brave for telling their story, and our hope is that it can help somebody out there. So, enjoy the show. To attempt to flee is a crime punishable by death. One person who escaped remarked, when I think about it now, I was not a human being. I was more like an animal. Only after leaving did I realize what life was supposed to be. Thanks for coming back. We've got an amazing show. My guest was raised in a religious cult, suffering years of mental, physical, and sexual abuse. She has since gotten out and is learning to get past all that she has endured. She has never spoken publicly about what she's gone through, and she's here today to share some of that and how she's beaten the odds. Please welcome Sarah Snyder. Sarah, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for coming on. Um, all right. So I guess let's just jump in. Um, yeah. What's your earliest memory of growing up in this cult? It was your whole life, correct? Correct. I was born into it. And so I always like to tell people, I can tell my childhood in a way that you would think I had the most perfect, idyllic childhood of anyone you'd ever met. But you know, that's kind of how it looked from the outside, right? But then behind the scenes, things were very different. Um, but I was born into it generationally. So my grandparents were in it, you know, so it's it's been a thing throughout my family. Yeah. So the whole family has been in it for, for how long? Do you know how long they've been in it? Uh, this particular cult was formed in the late 1800s. So I don't actually know kind of how far it goes back, but it goes back a couple generations on one side of the family. On the other side, uh, the, my other parent was, was, came into it later in life. Um, but my one parent was raised in it and then her parents were in it. And I think her parents were in it. Right. So it, it's been a while. <laughs> wow. That's a long time. Yeah. So one side has pretty much been there since the beginning. It's been, it's been a couple generations. Let me put it that way. It's, it's been several. Yeah. This is in the Midwest. I know we're not going to get into what it is and all that. I'm sure people can figure that out for themselves if they wanted to. Probably. <laughs> um, so <laughs> if they Google, they can probably figure it out. But I, you know, I, I'll say this, most of my family, not my entire family, but the majority of my family is still involved in it. So out of respect, you know, for them, uh, I don't want to specifically name what it is, but yeah. Yeah, no, that's completely understandable. So I guess kind of take me through, I mean, as much as you can, was there like lessons? Was there like a meeting house that you guys would get go to every day? So there's a couple things. One is some of the things, you know, when you look at them on a surface level, this is the thing. When you look at them on a surface level, you're like, well, that's not that bad, right? So women are subjective to men. In church, you know, the women, do, the women don't speak, right? The men, the man is the household, the man speaks. Now, how terrible is that? Eh, you know, there's a lot of churches probably that would go along with that. Um, women need to wear head coverings, right? We, we wear dresses because, you know, you were in church, right? Outside of church, I could kind of wear what I wanted to wear, right? Is it like your whole face is covered or just like your hair? No, no, no. Like, like a head covering because your hair is your glory, which is part, you know, out of the, I know people can't see me, right? But I have real short hair now, right? So, but growing up, I had really, really, really long hair. Um, and that's because my hair is the glory of the woman, right? So I, my dad wanted me to have very long hair, so I did. It was very legalistic is what it was. So it was very much follow the rules. And if you follow the rules, God loves you and approves of you. But if you don't follow the rules, you know, we don't approve of you and, and it's, it's not okay. And so to this day... I struggle with that, with the transactional love, even in my my everyday kind of relationships. So one of the things that we did was we did the Bible readings every night, right? So we read out of the Bible every night, which again, is that a terrible thing? Eh, probably not, right? But we had to read from the Bible every night. You go through the Bible, the Old Testament once a year, the New Testament twice a year, right? Based on, on these things. Um, but there were foundational quote-unquote brethren 
to this particular cult. And so everything in the Bible is discerned through these two particular brethren. Um, And so the people in the cult do not believe that you or I or Christian has the Holy Spirit, but they believe these two men were quote-unquote blessed by the Holy Spirit, which is how they're able to discern the Bible in a way that we can understand. It was a lot of fear-based and a lot of manipulation. So there wasn't a commune, because I do get that question quite a bit from close friends. I said, were you in a commune? I said, no, no, I went to typical school, right? Interacted with people, which is the part where it's like, oh, it it could be idyllic, right? Like my dad coached my softball team. You know, like that's the kind of stuff where people are like, huh? But it's the manipulation kind of behind the scenes and how things were twisted and turned and how I was treated and some of the situations that came up, right, that that I was made to handle in ways that now as an adult, I can look back and be like, oh, that was not okay. Because this is normal to you. Like, that's what I think a lot of people don't understand is, you know, why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you get out? Well, that's normal. You don't know that it's different than everyone else, right? Not only did I not realize it wasn't different, but you also have to understand if I leave, I lose my whole family, essentially, right? Which is kind of what's happened. To this day, the interactions with my family typically revolve around trying to convert me to come back. So yes, we love you, but we love you because you're a sinner and we want to try and convert you to come back. It's not your typical, I love you because you're you. It's like, I love you because I'm trying to save you kind of behavior. And so when I left in my, I didn't leave till my early twenties, believe it or not. And when I left in my early twenties, I had horrible, horrible nightmares um, that Christ was going to come back. Right. And then that I was going to be uh, judged to be found unfavorable and and go to their version of hell. And that, you know, there was going to be like the weeping and gnashing of teeth and, and just awful nightmares uh, for a long time. Uh, but thankfully I have, I have and had a very good friends, right. Who are very supportive and loving and, and, and kind of helped me through that. But people don't realize not only are you giving up your family, not only are you giving up what you've all, all you've known your whole life, not only are you giving up your version, the only version of God you've ever known, but you're also giving up your identity too, right? So one of the things people don't realize a lot is I was raised to play the piano. So I learned how to play the piano as a young kid up until I was in high school. I think I quit refusing piano lessons because uh, I was being a stubborn teenager, right? Uh, right? But I learned to play the piano because I was being raised to play for church. So I played for church. Um, it, it's like hymnals. So the whole church was seeing as I played the hymnals. When you leave, like you, you kind of lose some of that identity of like, who am I? Like, why did I learn to play the piano? What was the point of that? And so um, there's just a huge shift uh, kind of in everything that happens when, when you leave it, something like that. I can imagine that would be terrifying. Did you have friends help you get out or was it something that you, you just did one day? You just left and didn't turn back? So I left, I was raised up in, in the Midwest and I left when I turned 18. Uh, I thought I surely have to get out of this house I was raised in, right? I have to get out of here. So I actually had started having problems in school with my grades when I was like 15, 16. And I realized I couldn't get a scholarship for college if I didn't get my stuff together and start getting better grades. So I turned myself around, got better grades so I could go to college. So I took off, went to college in Texas and I, you know, 18, 19, 20, still being involved in that community, but in a community that was close to my college there in the Texas area and still thinking like, they've got to be right. This has to be right. Why, why would, how could this be wrong? Um, And they say things like, well, we have the truth. Everybody else doesn't have the truth and you can be in the world, but not be of the world. Right. And that sticks in your head where you're like, well, I can be around people, but I'm not actually like them. I'm like the cult, right? That's, that's my home. That's my family. That that's who I'm like, right? I'm not like these other people, even though you start to get to know people and you're like, huh, maybe things were a little messed up, right? (laughs) But, but it doesn't, it doesn't click. And so, um, I was in my early twenties and, uh, I started not going as often to the, to the church meetings and the cult meetings, right? The the Sunday service, the Wednesday service, Thursday service, I, I stopped going as much and people started to notice. And so the brethren came to talk to me and said, well, you need to, you need to start showing up. You know, you need to be here because basically if Christ returns and you're not, you're not fellowshipping, if you're not breaking bread and you're in a world of hurt, um, you can be judged unfairly by Christ for that. So you need to be showing up. And uh, I mentioned that to some of my buddies who, you know, were kind of talking to me all along because they're typical, not, not cult people. Right. And uh, they, they're like, Sarah, Sarah, this is weird. Like this is, this is way weird. Right. Anyway, finally, after some time with them, I actually had to write a letter uh, to say that I was no longer going to be a member of of this particular community. So I wrote a letter uh, and sent it in because I couldn't even tell them face to face, like I'm I'm leaving, I'm not coming back because it was so emotional for me. So I wrote a letter 
and they publish or they read the letter, publish it, whatever. And then they officially kick me out. It's to the point where you can't even withdraw yourself from this community. You can say I'm leaving, but they actually have to quote unquote disfellowship you, right? So that I was disfellowshipped after I wrote the letter saying, I, I don't want to be a part anymore. I'm not going to come anymore. But it's things like that, right? That just, it's not like you just quit going to church. Like there's actually like a whole legal law rule systems that they follow. It almost sounds like when you get fired from a job and you say, no, I quit. You can't. Like they're flipping it on you. <laughs> like that yeah, kind of thing yeah. to make themselves yeah, feel better. Yeah. 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 It was really getting myself to a point where I was hanging out more and more with people who were not in that environment and people who uh, were very loving to me and didn't judge me, but maybe gently questioned some things I would say. And they would say, why is this so important? To you? Are there other things you can maybe consider? Um, and so anyway, so, so all of that, all of that helped. So it's kind of in college, you kind of started realizing maybe this isn't completely normal. Yeah, it opened up my bubble. So as a kid, we we traveled a lot, but everything we traveled to were, were gathered, they call them gatherings or like conferences. So yeah, I traveled and people were like, oh, you travel all the time. Well, yeah, I went to, to other countries and I went to other places, right? But it was always for these religious gatherings. And I, like I said, I had friends in school, typical average American kids, but it wasn't until I was in college when I was more and more removed and I wasn't going to the gatherings as much. And I was making more friends kind of on my own without my parents knowing everything I was doing, right? That kind of stuff. When you cut your typical college freedom, you start getting more freedom and you start questioning things a bit more. So do you think that kind of surprises me that they let you go to regular school and let you go away to college because then they lose their control. So this is interesting, right? Because there were, it's kind of split within, within the cult. It's funny because there's some people that are super strict, right? And there's some people that are super relaxed and it was actually split. And my parents actually got a lot of flack um, because my, my dad actually encouraged me to go to college and he got a lot of flack for that, for encouraging me to go to college because of that, that fear. And I also, so I went to school to be a therapist uh, and I got a ton of flack for that because you're supposed to solve your problems, right? With, with God and Jesus in the community. And so why would you go to school to become a therapist? Like if you're going to make that risk, why would you make that risk to go be a therapist? That's just even worse, right? right. <laughs> so, wow. so that said, you know, there's a, I should probably explain this. So there's a very broad overhead of this particular type of cult. Um, and there's probably about... 50,000 maybe give or take across the world of this very broad overhead. But then there are subsects, right? So there's like little niches of this with different names. And so I was raised in one of the stricter of the subsects of this particular cult. And then it just so happens that the majority of my family tends to be a little bit stricter of of that. So it's like one upon the other upon the other. So is there like one main leader for each subset of it or is there just one main guy? So this is a fascinating argument as to why they're not a cult uh, because they don't have a someone today who is alive, who is quote unquote the head. What they do is they actually have a, I'll call it a board to, to use typical English. It's like a board of men who governs each particular church. And so this board of men is the governing body. So they say, well, we're not a cult because it's not, we don't have one particular cult leader. Uh, We have a board of men who governs each particular, they call it church body, right? So, so they have these different people, but they all base it on the foundational works, the two main brethren, right from the late 1800s. Yeah. So that's the other thing too. When I was trying to look at getting out, I kept thinking, well, they can't be that bad. It's not like we're drinking Kool-Aid. It's not like I'm answering to one man. And that's what I try and tell people. Cults don't look the way that you always think they look, right? It's not in the news and in the media. It's so hyped up. It's like 100% doomsday, one guy leading everything. And I'm like, it's not always like that, guys. Like there's a lot of stuff that happens that they can kind of get away with looking a little normal when it's not, which is also how they recruit people. Because it's not so scary to recruit somebody when you're like, hey, well, yeah, but it's just a body and we don't have one particular leader yeah but really you know it's the sport of men you know who kind of determines everything for the church that's that's quite the loophole that they that they have right? they thought that <laughs> right? through it sounds like you know? <laughs> yeah, right okay so take me back i know you suffered quite a bit of abuse growing up from them with the abuse do you know that that's different or do you think that's just what every kid goes through also it is not what every child goes through but it is what um a good handful of kids go through, unfortunately. So I was sexually abused from the time, I mean, my earliest memories are uh, obviously being sexually abused up until I was about seven. And there is a window, seven or eight or so, right? There's a window, there's like a gap of time where I was not being sexually abused. And then it started by a different man uh, from when I was like 10 to to 12-ish. 
So most of my childhood, right, was was being sexually abused. Um, and they were, you know, members of, of the church community. Um, one more highly respected than the other, but they are both members of the church community. And so the way that was handled was by the laws and the governings of, of the church. It's sad, right, to know that that happens and to know that I'm not the only kid that that happens to. That said, it's not like they're promoting it. It's also, but they also don't really do anything about it. It's like, yeah, it happens and okay, it happens. So it's not a thing that they practice. It's not a thing that they practice. It's also not a thing that is a big deal. It's not encouraged. It's not practiced, but it's also like, Sarah, what's the problem? Why can't you just get over it and forgive and go on? Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like what, Sarah, why are you talking about it publicly? Like just, it's, you know, it's between you, him and God, like it's deal with it. Wow. That's pretty shocking. So when you try to tell somebody this is going on, the sexual abuse, they feel like it's, it's your issue. Like it's your fault type thing. So what I'll tell you is when I outcry, so when, when the abuse ended, when I was seven or eight, I had asked about that, why that particular abuse ended. Um, I was told that it's because I got big enough that he wasn't interested in me anymore. Uh, so my understanding is that people were kind of aware that it was happening, but when they saw it happening, they would quote unquote, pick me up and take me away from him. So they would do things like that, but they didn't do anything to like, stop it. They didn't report it to the police. They didn't tell him to stop. There was none of that. So that was that section. When I was older and I outcried, I was about 12 when I outcried about the second abuse. Um, and I outcried to someone who was uh, an older relative of mine. Uh, she took me to another person who was, who was a part of the governing body of one of the churches. And she said, hey, this is going on. What do we do? Sarah's telling me this is going on. What do we do? And he said, you need to follow Matthew 18, which is a verse in the Bible that basically says, if someone is offending you, you go one-on-one to him and, and you tell him to stop. And then if he doesn't stop, you go bring other people to the problem. And so the response from this guy was, Sarah, you have essentially sinned against the church and you've sinned against this man doing this to you because you have not told him one-on-one that you don't like what he's doing. And I'm 12. Right. right. So, so this particular incident happened at one of the the conferences. So I'm left like, well, I got to handle this. Right. So I say, okay. Uh, So everybody goes home to their different respective countries and states from the conference. And and I go home alone with no one in my particular area knowing what happened or what was happening. Right. And I go, I'll go back home. I, in fact, I ended up writing him a letter and told him that to to stop and that people knew uh, and thank God, thank the heavens, thank whatever you want to thank that he did stop. And I got real lucky about that because he could have done, and I was 12, he could have done anything. And so, and he was trusted, my parents trusted, like, you know what I mean? He was a trusted member of the community. Anything could happen, but it didn't, thankfully, and he stopped. And I went about a year with no one knowing. So I was still around him all this time. So he was still my Sunday school teacher uh, until I was baptized because you have to apply to be baptized and be interviewed to be baptized. And that's a whole nother legalistic procedure. Uh, So he was still my Sunday school teacher. I was still around him all the time. About a year later, I was started acting out. Right. So I start doing things like self-injuring, dressing super baggy clothes. It, at this point, right, it's, it's just too much. And so finally, people kind of came to me and said, Sarah, quit behaving the way you're behaving. Why are you acting so? Why are you so angry? What, what's wrong with you? And so I finally said, after a while, I coughed it up. I said, well, this was going on with X-Men. This is what happened, blah, blah, blah. Um, and the response I got was, okay, but it's over now. What's the problem? Oh, no. We're good. So one of the things in this particular community uh, is that there's a lot of things done in the home. So they do have different places they rent to have church, but a lot of things are done in the home. So uh, it then became a thing where that particular man wasn't allowed to come to my house, right? But we still had church together. I still saw him a couple times a week. I was still going to his house for certain things. And people don't understand what I don't want to curse, but like how that messes with your mind, right? (laughs) When everybody around you is telling, and I was now 13, right? And everybody around you is telling you, what's the problem? What's the big deal? He stopped. And so now I'm dealing with two sets of abuse, two abusers I'm still seeing all the time. It was a really challenging period of, of time in life for me, right? The good thing is I had some people who came and this is what I try and tell people. People say all the time, well, how, how do you help a kid like that, right? I actually had some people like my high school guidance counselor. That woman uh, was amazing with me. So loving, so kind. And I only saw her, you know, at school. But she didn't fully know what was going on, right? But she kind of had a grasp of what was going on. And she would call me in her office and just sit with me a couple minutes, a couple times a week and just silly things that she would tell me about her day or whatever. And that is honestly what kept me going. I had teachers who who could tell that I was gifted and intelligent. Uh, and so they 
would spend extra time with me after class, you know, reading a book with me or telling me about a book I should read. And it was those little things that people don't understand that 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 is what kept me alive, essentially. (laughs) It is those little minor, I call them minor, little minor interactions with people being like, oh no, these people do care about me. I am seen, right? I am. And that's kind of what, what allowed me to get through high school. Looking back on it, do you think that maybe they knew something was going on? And so that's why? So at one point, I did tell uh, some friends of mine in high school, right, that some of this stuff that had happened, they didn't know the full degree, but I, I kind of told, because it just, you you almost can't, no matter how much you're told to keep quiet about it, right? It's just the point where you're like, I, I, I can't, because it's so horrifying all the time, because it's your day in, day out life. And so I finally told some high school friends, and they actually ended up somehow, I don't know how the back end happened, it's a, a CPS report ended up getting made at some point, but so Child Protective Services, right? So actually, Child Protective Services came to me at one point and actually interviewed me and talked to me about it. But I had already been very well coached uh, that if I was asked about certain things, I was to respond in a certain way. So I responded to CPS in in very certain specific ways as I'm being interviewed, knowing that can I ask real quick, how do they go about coaching you? It was a, it was a sin to talk bad about another brother in the church. So I, was, I knew not to disclose his name, right? Because I would be talking bad about him. Um, I knew to be careful about the specifics, right? And, and how, how specific I got about what actually happened um, because I had been told that was between me and him, right? So I wasn't to talk about the super specifics, right? About what he did. Uh, so I have a sibling. I knew that there was a very good chance that my sibling and I could be completely removed from the home altogether. If I disclosed too much, right? And so there was some fear around that, right? How are you going to go to church and how are you going to break bread on Sunday, right? If you're not in the home with us, that type of stuff. So it was mostly fear-based. Yep. There was a lot of fear. Okay. I, I think you were talking about telling your friends and I, before I, yeah, so I, I told my, yeah, yeah. So I had, no, I had told my friends, right. So at some point, like a CPS report got filed. So I think then it started to become more and more um, within like, you know, my guidance counselor, right. She knew more. I think my teachers knew a bit more right after some of that happened. But still, what do you do? You've got a kid who's kind of telling part of the story, but not the full story, right? And who is depressed. But then on the other hand, like, what do you, you know what I mean? The CPS isn't removing her from the home. So it's like this balancing act, right? Of like, what do you do? Yeah, that would be tough. Did you ever tell the counselor anything or no? It's I, I ended up telling her bits and pieces. So at one point I figured out, <laughs> at one point I figured out that the way I could get a break from having to be around these men was to say that I was super depressed and go to a psych hospital. <laughs> so at one point, really? I said, I know, right? So at one point I, I said, uh, I'm going to kill myself. Uh, and I was real adamant about it. And so uh, finally the guidance counselor and they eventually the guidance counselor said, she's got to go to therapy. You've got to get her to therapy, right? And my parents fought that real hard. Uh, but eventually CPS kind of did say, we'll remove her if you don't send her to therapy. So um, my parents begrudgingly sent me to therapy and I told my therapist like I'm gonna kill myself <laughs> so, so I, I shouldn't laugh about it right but but you know but I got so they sent me to a psych hospital uh as, as, a, as a teenager and uh, it gave me a break it was like the best week of my high school life which is nuts because you're in a psychiatric hospital where you're locked down you don't have freedom but you can't get out right and I'm like dude I'm safe we're good <laughs> like I don't have to see anybody or talk to anybody I don't want to talk to like this is amazing is that when you reflect more in that week and realize okay, maybe all this is not right. This is not normal. You know, there was a tech at the hospital and the tech came up to me one day. I don't know the guy, just his dad, I don't know who he is. Uh, he was just work direct care staff, right? He's just working a shift. And he came up to me and I was sitting on the couch and he said, why are you, kind of said, why are you here? You know? And I said, um, well, I want to kill myself. And he said, well, why do you want to kill yourself? And I said, well, so I was abused and I can't get over it and I want to kill myself. And that man looked me straight up in the face and said, what happened to you was not your fault. And then he got up and went on his way doing his thing. That is the first person I think I ever believed that there was a potential that that abuse was not my fault because I couldn't figure out why he said it to me. Why would a stranger who I don't know come up to me and tell me that when everybody else... And and so my therapist was sometimes saying to me, Sarah, what happened wasn't your fault. But I was like, well, you got to say that you're my therapist. But this guy out of the blue, like what, what, what? Anyway, that goes back to those little micro interactions, right? I still remember that guy. I still remember him sitting next to me and telling me that the abuse wasn't my fault. And that just rocked my world. Isn't that bonkers? (laughs) It's that little thing that like completely changed your world. And it was, you know, it probably was nothing, almost nothing to him. He probably didn't remember me or it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's, that's pretty cool that that like changed your whole world. Okay. So before this, does the abuse go on every day? Um, no, it was not every day. So it was, uh, a couple times a week when I was around these particular men from when I was younger, it was much more frequent. 
when I was older, it was not as frequent. It was much harder for him to get this extra time along with me, right? So, you know what I mean? When I was younger, it was a little different. Um, but yeah, it, we didn't live all in the same spot, so they didn't have as much access to me. Well, that's good. When do yeah. you when do you start telling people, and who do you tell? Are you telling your parents? Do you tell the church leaders? About which one? I guess let's start with the first one. So that's the one that I didn't even, I, I never said anything about, right? And that's the one where later on, why I said, you know, why did it end? And that's when I was told, you know, you were just too big and he wasn't interested in you anymore. And we did what we could. We took you away from when we noticed stuff and, and you know. So, so that was from when I was that little, um, when I was older, family member of mine, uh, who was a, who was a woman. And then she took me to one of the church leaders of the particular board of his church. Right? And so then he's the one that sent me back home. So then I guess it was a year later, uh, when I kind of came back and people started saying, what is wrong with you? I finally told somebody. And that particular person is the one who told my parents, but then my, my parents, right. Who, who were wonderful parents in some respects and very terrible parents in other respects, <laughs> You know, we're kind of the ones that was like, you know, along with the church, right? They went to the church for, for consult. They consulted with the church and the church was kind of like, you got to deal with it. So my parents were like, you got to deal with it, <laughs> right? It happened, it happened. So, and then everybody kind of just blamed you for it. One of the things that happened later when, when the church where I was living in uh, found out more, a little bit more about it, they did it eventually kind of tell this guy, like one, one of the men, they said, you know, you need to probably take a time out for this. And so he, he recused himself from fellowship for a little bit. He, he took a little bit of a time out. Um, and so what the church did then is they came to me and they said, we want you to know that his salvation is on you now because he is supposed to be a member of this body and he's supposed to be here. And he left because you're upset with him. So if Christ returns and he is not in fellowship with us, his salvation is a jeopardy, but so is your religious salvation because he has left because you were upset about what happened. And I'm like, you know, maybe 13th place at 13, 14th this time. So that is why today, right, when when I try and I think about God or I sit down, because I, I consider myself a Christian today, right? So I, I try and sit and think about God. So much of it has been relearning things, right? And relearning that that is not what that Matthew 18 means, right? It doesn't mean that for a kid at all, right? It means that for Christians who are in fellowship with each other, who are adults, right, who, who have minor conflict to go talk to each other. And it's the same thing too with situations like that. Like my salvation isn't based on someone else's actions, right? This is not. But as a kid, like hearing that, like, again, fear-based, right? There's a lot of fear in that. I'm, I'm like, oh, they don't believe in heaven and hell like a typical Christian who is in heaven and hell. But anyway, but I'm going to go to hell, right? Because I'm upset with him for molesting me. So that's when I say, you know, is it encouraged? Like, no, it's not encouraged, but also, is it discouraged? It's like, well, no, it's it's the victim's fault and you just need to deal with it. And at that age, you're so, like, I'm trying to think back to that age in mine, and it, this is probably in yours. I mean, I wasn't in a cult, but you're taught to respect your elders and you, you kind of hang right. on to everything that your parents say to you. And so I'm trying to put myself in, the, in your shoes of going to the people I respect and the people I love and telling them that this abuse is going on and then getting blamed for it. Like, that's got to be just excruciating, getting blamed for it. Like, that's got to be just excruciating. You know, it, or do you not know? I mean, do you just think it's normal? I, you that's think it the is thing, your right? You yeah. just think it is normal. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. You know, I tell people now, I, I get angry sometimes now, like really, really mad about it, right? Like, like rageful angry. Like, I went out uh, about a year ago, <laughs> I put some old electronics out in my backyard, and I took a, a sledgehammer, right? And I, beat the old electronics in the back air with the sledgehammer as hard as for as long as I could until I, until I just could not physically move my body anymore. That's where it's like, it's the healing piece now, right? And that's where the rage, you, you, now it's like, I get to feel that rage that really I could have, should have been able to feel as a child. But at the time you're just so, you're so, people are saying you're so in it, right? You're so in like, this is the norm. Like, these are the people I'm supposed to respect. They know the Bible better than me. They know what I'm supposed to be doing, right? I trust them. Trust for me now is a huge factor. Right? Can I trust you? I don't know if I can trust you, right? Like, yeah. what are your intentions here? And so that has been a big piece of, of healing, right? And getting to the, to the point I am now is, is is figuring out some of those things and then letting myself have some of those feelings that, that really I should have, could have had as a kid that I wasn't able to have and, and having them today and figuring out how to cope and how to deal with, with some of those feelings. 
I bet that felt good though. <laughs> Destroying all. Oh that yeah, stuff. being the sledgehammer, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's awesome. Do you think it's like my little rage room in the backyard? Right. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> that's so cool. I, I I was picturing as you're saying it. I'm picturing your neighbors watching you, going, "What in the hell is Sarah doing today?" <laughs> I have no doubt they wondered, but nobody said anything. Thankfully, so we're okay. Well, I wouldn't have gone near you with a sledgehammer. <laughs> Right? <laughs> do you think so you're talking about coping and stuff do you think because your hair was sacred and you have short hair now do you think that's part of the rebellious part of it going against it and saying well this was so sacred i'm gonna chop it off so yeah yes and no so for people that can't see i have like a faux hawk got a mohawk thing going on uh so yes and no uh when i got into college i, I cut it shorter and shorter and shorter kind of in, in high school and then into college i kept cutting it like shorter length kind of shorter that to me was rebellion um the haircut i have today honestly is is because I tend to be a fairly creative person, especially at work. Like creativity is really important to me. So we haven't talked about quite about this piece yet, but in October of last year, I picked up and I left Texas and I became quote unquote a digital nomad, right? Aruba for a few months and I swam with turtles there and I lived in Costa Rica for a couple months and I went up a volcano and, and swam in the oceans there. I did all that fun stuff. And so when I was in Costa Rica, I had, I had about shoulder length hair and I thought, it's got to go. This isn't me. <laughs> so I cut a bunch of it off. It's not a rebellion. It's more of a reflection of my journey and who I am today and more of the confidence and the fun and the creativity I get to have in my life today. I can respect that. I like that. <laughs> so before you were telling me about, and you've just kind of discovered this, is dissociative disorder? Is that what it's called? It's called dissociative identity disorder, DID. Yeah. It used to be called multiple personality disorder or MPD. One of the coping skills that I developed and I didn't realize that it was not something that everybody experienced <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I was about five or six uh, when I realized I asked someone who was about my age as a kid. I said, what are the voices in your head like? And this particular kid looked at me and said, what, what voices were you talking about? Uh, and I was like, oh, I'm different, but I don't know why I'm different. And I don't know how I'm different. <laughs> right? Right. Just kidding. So, right. I, that's yeah. what I said. I was like, just kidding. Right. What I'm playing. But dissociative identity disorder, basically you have uh, more than one personality. So what happens is you develop these distinct personalities that take over during times of high stress or during times of trauma. And so they come out and it's a protective mechanism, right? Because then you don't have to go through what you're going through. Unfortunately, they've made horror movies about it, like Split, right? As a horror movie that they've made about DID. But it's actually a beautiful coping skill. It is just no longer effective to live life with once you're out of the traumatic environment. Is it real quick? Is it a genetic thing or is no. it the coping thing? It comes on because of the trauma. It comes on because of trauma. So it is typically developed when you have intense, typically is developed in intense childhood uh, traumatic situations, which are uh, ongoing and difficult to escape or unable to be escaped because you have to go somewhere in your mind when that stuff's happening. And so it is much easier to develop another personality to take over and deal with whatever's happening than it is for you to sit there and experience that. I would be probably 100% all the time in an insane asylum if I hadn't developed DID. Oh, wow. So that's how your brain copes with, Coped with what was happening. On. Oh, wow. So what happened was I, I as an adult, so later in life, right, as an adult, I was hospitalized a, a couple of times due to severe depression because I was, I was actively suicidal. Um, and so I was hospitalized a couple of times. And as I was in the hospital, the doctor said to me, we think you have dissociative identity disorder. Um, but I knew that was a fairly serious diagnosis. And I said, no, I don't. Thank you so much. Have a good day. No, I don't. And then in one of the hospitalizations, they came to me and they said, uh, they said, Sarah, they said, you, uh, you've been through some stuff, right? They said, but we, we don't know really how to help you unless you're willing to commit to a minimum of three months in a psychiatric hospital, like lockdown all the time with us so that you can talk about what you've been through and get through all of it. And we can basically like kind of then patch you up and put you back together. Uh, and I said, I don't have three months. Are you kidding me? Like I, I am, I have been very successful career wise, right? I said, I don't have three months. To uh, yeah. Like, thank you so much. Have a good day. Right. Uh, they said, well, all we could, all we can do for you is put a patch on you then and go about your way. And I had convinced myself that I had early onset Alzheimer's because one of the things with DID is when the personalities take over is you lose chunks of time. So I would go to the girl 
grocery store and come out and I had had no idea what I bought. Uh, it's kind of like when you're driving, right? You're driving, you're like, how did I get here? Right. You kind of drive from point A to point B and you're like, oh, I do this right all the time. And you just kind of what, but it's for much more significant periods of time. And it's where I'll meet people sometimes, Mike, uh, especially when I was in Texas still, uh, I would meet people and I'm so sorry. I had no idea who they are, where they came from, but apparently we have had a couple interactions, <laughs> right? But I don't know who they are. So, uh, you know, you learn to just smile and nod and say, uh huh. Say, oh yeah, that was a great party, whatever. Right. right. And just talk through it. <laughs> I would, uh, I call it like waking up. So I would, I would kind of come to or wake up sometimes. And, uh, I would be in the middle, uh, like, especially at college when it was high stress, like uh, I had to give a presentation. I would like wake up and be in the middle of talking. I had no idea what I was talking about. No idea where I was, no idea who I was talking to. Right. And you learn real quick to like focus and be like, and, and finish whatever you're talking about. Really? Um, it's because another personality without doing whatever it needed to do. Right. And then all of a sudden, they call it the, the main or the host personality, right? Which is me, the person you're talking to today, right? Comes out and it's like, uh-oh, like what is going on here? What are we doing, right? <laughs> right. Uh, but I thought, I, like I said, I thought I had early onset Alzheimer's. That was the only thing I, because I refused to accept the DID diagnosis. And so I was like, well, that's got to be what it is. But what else could it be? And then it was about maybe six or seven years ago, uh, maybe six years ago, I met a really wonderful therapist. She's a lovely woman um, there in Texas. And she was like, Sarah, like you've been hospitalized a couple of times. They've talked to you about this. I really think this is something that that you should consider exploring as a possibility, right? The CID. And so finally in working with her, I was able to accept that that was an actual diagnosis, but I had uh, full transparency plan on living the rest of my life with DID. Right? I was like, this is how the rest of my life's going to be. And then about a year and a half ago, I met a wonderful woman who is an international trauma specialist and she worked with me uh, and still does work with me. And she is wonderful, right? And um, she worked with me and got me to a point where it was never the intent of us working together, but I'm to the point now where I consider myself cured. Uh, I don't consider myself to have DID anymore. They would call me a, a, like a single, singular, right? right? Not plural anymore. <laughs> there's only one. Right. Um, and I tell people, I, I want to be respectful, right? Because there's there's a lot more people in the world that have DID than what people realize. Um, there's successful doctors, therapists, lawyers, the whole, the whole gamut, right? That have DID. And a lot of people don't want their personalities to go away because it is a very... Uh, scary thing to, to live life differently without them. And I'll give you a, a prime example. When I was in Aruba this last year, I was out swimming in the ocean and um, seeing the turtles in the ocean, right? Having a wonderful day with my, my local friends there. And I got stung by a jellyfish. And if I still had DID, I would have been hurting for about 30 seconds. Another person, maybe not even, another personality would have taken over and I would have lost the rest of the day. Wouldn't have remembered it. I also would not have been in pain, right? <laughs> as a, wow. as a quote unquote singular person, right? I got stuck by the jellyfish and I was like, oh, this hurts, right? And I remember telling my local buddy there, I'm like, this hurts, this hurts. And he's like, dude, you got stung by a jellyfish. Of course it hurts. I'm like, no, but it still hurts, right? It still hurts. And he's like, of course it still hurts. I'm like, yeah, but it still hurts. And so uh, I'm sure he was like, what is wrong with this woman? <laughs> but, but the positive of that, right, is I remember the rest of the day. I remember, you know, having having the rest of the day, having lunch with him, right? I remember hanging out with my other friends in the evening. I remember joking about the jellyfish stuff. Like, I remember all of that. So it's like, you know, pros and cons. Um, and I tell people today, sometimes I get lonely and people are like, oh yeah, okay, you're lonely. And I'm like, no, I don't have people in my head talking to me anymore. I mean, like my head is quiet. Like I am lonely. Like I don't know how you people deal with not having friends in your head to talk to them. I'm like, I am lonely. And so uh, there's pros and cons to having it cured, right? Like I, I would much rather have it cured and live the life I have today. But there, there's some difficult things I've, I've had to had to give up and, and change about my life. The, okay, so the disorder. So you have the voices in your head. Is it kind of a thing where when it's just you, when it's just Sarah, mm -hmm. they're all there and they're you can talk to them and have a conversation with them type thing and you can remember that. But if one of them takes over, then you can't remember that. Correct. So yes and no, says my answer to that. They are, were not all present all the time in my head, right? So they were not, it's not like all, all of them were all in my head and I talked to them all the time. Sometimes they would kind of come and go into the background, right? As far as who I could talk to and who I could talk to. One, because 
probably sounds silly, but they, they would get mad at me sometimes, right? Because they wouldn't agree with decisions I made and they would get mad and like disappear, right? <laughs> and I wouldn't be able to talk to them anymore. Or one would want my attention more than the other. It was literally like running a household in your head, right? No so so there's that. But I, I could generally remember conversations with them, right? Or different pieces with them. But then when they call it fronting. So when one went front, that's when I would lose track of time or not know what, what my quote unquote physical body had done. Um, and I got to a point in therapy where I would sometimes ask them like, Hey guys, I'm missing this chunk of time. Can someone please tell me what happened? (laughs) What did we do? And so that is a gamble as if they're actually going to give you the information on what you did with that particular period of time or not. Right. But it's so, it's, it's weird to explain to people. Right. But it saved my life. So, so as much, sometimes I, I feel, I would call inappropriate shame about it, but I'm also so grateful that I had it to, to get through what I got through. That's interesting. So when you call upon one of the other ones, it's a gamble. You don't know if if they're going to come out or if they're going to tell you the but, truth of what happened. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. my gosh. Wow. So that's yeah. kind of true. Like, I mean, that, that's pretty much what I know about it is from Split, the movie that you just spoke about. And But it's kind of like it's almost, I mean, not to that extreme, obviously. You're not out killing people. But it's kind of <laughs> the same concept where he doesn't know what the other ones are doing. Yep. So the big piece of it and what really helped uh, me heal was, like I said, I started working with this woman, Dawn, and she took the time to get to know each one of my personalities. And I, I hadn't really done that with anyone. So I hadn't trusted anyone or felt safe enough with anyone for them to actually get to know each personality. And she got to know each personality and would like communicate with them individually, like talk to them, spend time with them. Um, and all of a sudden, like I started to feel like, safer and they started to feel safer almost with each other. And then as time progressed in my coaching and, and trauma work that we did, she was just so patient and so kind and so calm with each one of them. And some of the personalized preferred to write, some preferred to talk, some preferred uh, to yell, right? It just, it just, you know, like one of my personalized was a kid, right? And so there was a lot of like childlike kind of interactions. And so in her kind of helping work through that, and then it, it helped me kind of heal that. And then there was a, a point in time where, and like, kind of like I mentioned before, right? When I was in the psych hospital and they had told me, well, in order for you to, to get through this You've got to spend three, at least three months with us to break you down, right? And the piece of that was I had never told anybody the severity of what I had gone through as a young child. So no one knew how bad that had been. Um, and Dawn came into my life and she said, Sarah, she said, the issue isn't with you. Because I thought I was weak. I thought, well, I can't tell anybody this because I'm weak, right? It's my fault. I live through it, but I'm too weak to tell people about it. Uh, and Dawn said, that's ridiculous, Sarah. She said, it's not you. It's not that you're weak. You lived it. You survived it. You can talk about it. She said, the issue is the onus is on me for you to be able to trust me to walk you through the emotions that you're going to experience as you're telling me what happened to you. Um, And so after we had started work, she and I started working together uh, for a couple months. It finally got to that point where I felt safe enough. And she sat, um, she's actually in another country. So she sat over Zoom with me for about three and a half hours. Um, and I told her everything that I could remember that happened to me from with, the, this is why I saw deity, right? With the personalities, um, everything that had happened to me from the time when I was a little, little up until I was about seven or so. And that was the most healing experience I think I've ever had. I woke up the next day and I was like, oh my goodness, I felt so free. Like just, just that it was out. But I tell people, you have to be careful. You can't just like go tell anybody, right? It's really gotta be someone who can sit and walk you through the emotions and walk you through the experience and walk you through the feelings that you have and walk you through the memories and make sure you don't get stuck in a memory, right? That you can actually walk through it and talk through it. And that uh, has completely changed my life. And it was not but long after that, um, that the personalized all, all kind of disappeared. Again, this probably sounds strange, right? But we sat down and I, I talked to them. They agreed that I was kind of safe enough to take care of myself. And I agreed I was safe enough to not need them. And then it, it wasn't, but a little bit longer, I woke up one morning and, and they were gone. And I remember being like, what is this? My head is so quiet. Right. And then it clicked. I said, Oh, they're gone. They're gone. Uh, and they, it, so I, anyway, so I say I, I've traveled since then, right. And I've been in times of really high stress and I've actually, at one point I broke down crying. I said, guys, please come back. I miss you. Please come back. And they didn't. And so it's, it's weird, right. They're gone, but it, and I say they're gone, but they're also, it is who I am today, right. It is me. Cause they were all essentially pieces of me. It's just, all in one now, right? Rather than a fragmented puzzle. So they're still there. You perceive them as gone because you're not, 
you can't speak to them? Are you speaking out loud or is it in your, you're just talking like in your thoughts? So it was in my thoughts, but there were times when uh, it would get so chaotic and so loud that I I would kind of yell at them out loud. Uh, But typically the conversations, right, were all in my head. So you wouldn't, like I said, I I haven't, I've been extremely successful in my life. You would have no idea, no idea to meet me on the street. You, you know, you might think it's weird that we do something together and I don't remember the details. Right. (laughs) Right. So people would, people would tell me, they'd be like, so we knew you're a little weird. Like we do some little off, but you know, I had great friendships. I had romantic relationships. I had, I traveled, you know, I, I, you know, I did all these things. And so, so people, it was, it, that was the other challenging thing, right. was trying to explain to people, yeah, I have DID right now. I'm going to be yeah, I'm cured of DID. Right. So, you know, people don't typically know or notice. It's not as dramatic as what they make it out to be uh, a lot of times in the movies or on TV. Can most people be cured of this or is this a pretty unique no, case? I am. I don't really know of anyone other than one other woman who is out saying that she's cured. There are people who will say they have quote unquote integrated. So that is when all the personalities come together. So there are people in the world who say I'm integrated. Um, but most people who I know of in, in the studies I've read will say that even if you're integrated, you can still in, in times of high stress call out the personalities. So day to day you're integrated, day to day you're singular, but high stress or high, high whatever environments will bring them back out, right? And then and then you put them back in. I have been in extremely stressful, high stress situations this last year, year and a half. They're gone. And so that's how I'm able to confidently say I'm cured, right? Which is which is rare. It's not considered a curable diagnosis. What's the usual treatment for it? Is it medication? So you cannot treat DID with medication. Uh, most people will say that you just, you learn to live with it. So you learn to communicate with the personalized effectively enough that they stop taking over all the time. And so they kind of live in the background or you do the integration route, which a lot of people with DID don't want to do for good good reason. It's scary, right? And so so then there's the, the potential for integration, but a lot of people just learn to manage the community in their head in a way that is effective where they can live life and go on. I will say though, I was uh, at one point in my life, even though meds don't treat DID, I was on at one point fifteen different psychiatric meds um, at a time. And when I met Dawn uh, this last year, year and a half ago, when I met her, I was on twelve at a time. So I was on like a mood stabilizer, an upper, I was on a downer, I was on one for my attention span, I was on one to help me sleep, I was on one to help me nightmares. I could go on and on, right? So I'm on these twelve different medications, and I was having suicidal thoughts every day. A lot of the intent was gone, but I still was just miserable. I was so sad, like so depressed and so sad. So for me to be able to look you in the eye today and say, like, I'm not on any psychiatric meds. I haven't been on any psychiatric meds in like at least seven months. I haven't taken any. Wow. I consider myself cured. I'm happy. I love my life. I love my business. I love my friends. You know, I'm like I said, I'm learning about God. Um, and that too, right, is huge to be able to sit and, and learn about God and stay present and not think about all the trauma and not think about all the manipulation and not think about the things that were done to me as I was learning about God as a kid, right? And to stay focused. It's just, it's a night and day different life today. It's really is incredible and everything you've gone through. And you're just, this is just recent. You said seven months. So during the pandemic, when you're cooped up, do you think that helped in the, in the healing process? So there's a couple of things. The pandemic helped in some ways in that uh, it almost gave me more time to focus on myself and my personal healing and my personal growth because you're, you're stuck, right? So what are you going to focus on, but, but working yourself. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it also got me to a point in the pandemic did where I decided I wasn't, I wasn't going to live in fear anymore. And I decided I would be smart about my life and I'd be smart about the decisions I made. But when October hit, um, I said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not living in here anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. Um, which is when I took off for Aruba, right? And so I went to live in Aruba because uh, I said, I deserve to have a life of, of joy. And, and, and so, yeah. And so you, what you've gone off and you're just, you're living your life. You're not, you're not stuck in that kind of rut, I guess. Is that kind of what? Yeah. So, so yeah, before, like I said, I had thoughts almost every day of wanting to kill myself. I did it every day. Uh, And I don't, I don't remember the last time I thought I killed myself. Uh, And in fact, I told, I I made a, I I write a lot on Facebook just to to give people an idea. Um, And I wrote on Facebook the other day and said, um, I said, I sat on the couch and cried and I beat myself up for it, right? I felt bad about it because I spent the day on the couch crying. And it was funny because Dawn reminded me, she said, Sarah, when we first started working together, you couldn't cry physical tears. And one of your goals was to be able to cry. <laughs> so she said, this is great. What are you talking about? Like, why are you upset about this? This is wonderful. <laughs> like you sat and we sat and cried for a day. Uh, so wow. so it's things like that that people don't realize that that's huge progress. Uh, and so the life I have today is, is really a 
blessing with the sadness, with the ups, with the downs, with all that. It's, it's really a gift and I'm thankful for it. So you're just basically relearning everything. <laughs> I'm relearning what healthy love looks like. I'm relearning what God looks like. I'm, I'm relearning, uh, you know, that it's okay to cry. I'm learning that it's okay to have joy. I'm learning that it's okay to, to kind of live the life I want to have without being in fear all the time. I'm learning how to ask for what I want. I'm learning how to ask for what I need, right? Because so many of my needs weren't met or weren't shut down or weren't safe to ask for, right? Um, and so I even texted a friend here the other day and I said something about coming over for a hug. Uh, and it was so nice. Uh, to be able to say like, hey, I'm kind of having a bad day. Can you come give me a hug, right? Yeah. That's something I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have really done before. And some of, it's funny, some of my friends who've been my friends for, you know, 15 or so years, they actually say, Sarah, we don't always know how to show up for you today. They said, we love you and we care about you, but you're not in the bed crying and depressed and needing us to come come drag you out of bed and make sure you're functioning, you know? Yeah. So we, we, you know, how do you want us to show up for you? Like, we don't know, we don't know what you need in our friendship. As sad as that is, it's also beautiful, right? To be like, dude, I need you to come visit me. I need you to come travel. I need you to come, you know, tell me a joke, right? Tell me about your kids. Tell me about, right? Tell me about what you're doing with your life. I want to hear about your stuff. It's really, it's really amazing. Oh, I can imagine. It's, it sounds like it's completely night and day. You spoke about Dawn a little bit. I think we were going to bring her in. Should we try to get her on here and talk to her sure. for a second? Yeah. She can kind of she can kind of help us go through how you know what her process was, I guess, in in helping you. Yeah. There's lots of people right who have experienced uh, sexual abuse. There's lots of people in the world who have DID. There's lots of people in the world who are digital nomads, right? There's lots of people who have been depressed. I'm just lucky enough to be in the point where I've made it to where I made it in um there's also people who have survived cults or there's people who are in cults. But what I want people to know really at the end of the day is that it is possible to, to heal and that it is possible to get to a point where you you can enjoy your life. And so I want to encourage people to not not stop fighting for themselves. In other words, like always, always keep fighting for yourself. You know, I've had people tell me along the way, we don't know what to do. For professionals say to me, Sarah, we don't know what to do for you anymore. Like you're so basically like we have tried to help you and we've tried to help you and we don't know what to do for you anymore. And so what I try and tell people today is, is don't stop fighting. Even if you hear that, go find someone who does know what to do for you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> go find someone who can help you right with what you're going through. Right. Um, I, I imagine. Did you go through just a ton of different therapists and doctors and. So I did. Yeah, I've, I've seen a couple more than a couple, quite a few doctors. I've seen quite a few therapists. I've seen quite a few uh, treatment professionals and, and some are better than others. And I'm grateful for everyone that tried to meet me where I was at. Grateful for people doing, doing what they could to help. How do you get the strength, I guess, to keep going after, you know, after them not knowing and them telling you how they can't help you, basically? How do you keep going when, because you're already in, you're not in a very good state, right? Okay. It was, it was the micro interactions. I focused on those micro, I focused on the fact I have um, a niece and a nephew who I loved to pieces. And, and some days that, that almost wasn't enough. Right. But I focused on, on how much I, I love and care about those, those two kids. Um, I focused on you know, my friend's kids who, who I love to pieces. I focused on, you know, someone would send me a text sometime and just be like, Hey, I'm thinking out of the blue. Hey, I'm thinking about you. Hey, I love you. People don't understand this. Sometimes those littlest things in the world and you don't expect that you, you just, but it's like, Oh, like I, I can do this today. Sometimes there's just a random phone call or a random, like, Hey, like I'm, I'm bringing your favorite dinner tonight. I'm like, well, why? I don't know. I just thought you might need it. Um, sometimes it was a boss giving me a compliment, telling me how good I was at my job. And I tried so hard to hang on to those little things. Yeah. It's just incredible what you've overcome. And to come out on the other side, like just so much stronger and with a completely different perspective on everything. And that's the thing. I don't ever want anyone to go through what I went through. I don't ever want anyone to have the experiences I've had in life. I think they're all from Even the people who did this to me, I don't want them to ever go through what I went through. I mean that. But that said, I have learned that I have to find the good and what I can. So one of the things I often say is the DID even cured is a big piece of my creativity. Or it's a big piece of how I think differently. So that's a big thing for me. People tell me sometimes, especially newer friends, they say, Sarah, you're so thankful. You're always so grateful and so thankful. It makes me laugh. I say, I try real hard to be because I didn't get to have the same gratitude that I have today for the things um, because I, I don't know... <laughs> People say you appreciate things more. And I'm like, well, yeah, because I didn't have them before. So so now they, they mean a lot to me, even though it might be something that you grew up with and you're used to right, and you had every day. They mean, It absolutely means the world to me today. I don't know if you heard the door knocking a second ago, but one of my friends knew I was doing this podcast. And so she actually sent her kids over to check. Right. So those are they thought I'd be done by now. Right. Oh. So they're knocking on the door. I saw them through the window walking up. 
uh, and they were knocking on the door and be like, you know, hey, are you ready to come see me? That to me means the world to me. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you took time out of your day because you knew I was a little bit anxious and stressed about this podcast to come check on me out of the blue, right? And how am I not going to be thankful for that, right? Right, yeah. And so, uh, but, it, but, you know. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I completely get what you're saying. That's awesome to appreciate all the little things. Do you still have any contact with any of your family that's still there? So I do because remember they want to reconvert me. So oh, that's it is, right. yeah. it is very, okay. it's very much a healthy boundaries thing for me. And that's something I've been working on is what do healthy boundaries look like? What does love look like? Oh, I think she's here. She says she's in the waiting room. Yeah. Oh, there she is. And Don. Hello. Hello. Oh, there we go. Howdy. Hey, 